0: Uh, hey,
1: this is Ed. So this is a
0: podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. I work this podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth.
1: Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, it's May 1st, 2020. And we are here with the May uh, preview of Retinal Physician. Uh, Retinal Physician is a publication that also is f- available for free online at retinalphysician.com. I'm joined by Drs. Ajay Kurian, Sriji Patel, and Sarah uh, Reed for this podcast episode. We recorded this April twenty second, 2020 in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic quarantining. Uh, and we had a great discussion that will follow. We cover topics including telehealth. Uh, we talk about drill in retinal vascular disorders, a discussion of pediatric retina setups, and finally, and with the discussion of COVID-19 in each of our areas. Um, you can find a list of financial disclosures in the episode description. Remember that you can find all of our podcast episodes available online at retinapodcast.com. And in the episode description, there's a link to claim CME for this podcast episode and other podcast episodes at the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. <laughs> Straight from the cutter's mouth is now uh, joined by three very professional, yet three uh, very joyous and laughing retina specialists from six different time zones. Uh, first in alphabetical order, Dr. Ajay Kurian um, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ajay, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me, Jay.
1: Next, Dr. Sriji Patel from uh, Vanderbilt University. Sriji. Thanks for having me, Jay. And then last but not least, Dr. Sarah Reed-Choy, Choi, is taking full advantage of her cut-down clinics to obviate the six-hour time difference from Hawaii, wake up at 6.30 a.m. and do podcasts. Sarah, welcome back.
2: Well, I'm trying to find new hobbies, so my hobby is doing this podcast
1: now. so, this crew, so much for having me, Jay. This crew, this <laughs> group of four, has already been labeled the gang of four probably by a certain pharmaceutical company um, after our last <laughs> podcast recording together. But we're going to talk about the May issue of retinal physician. Um It seems silly to do a retinal physician update because so actually a couple of these articles are relevant. And we're, the way this works, again, I'm going to summarize the articles. They're available online at retinalposition.com. We're not here to recap them, rephrase them, or paraphrase them. You can read them at your own time uh, if you want. They're available for free. We're just gonna use them as jumping off points for discussion. So for the first article is written by Riva Lee Asbell uh, about coding and about ophthalmic telemedicine and telehealth visits and how they can utilize. And there's a lot of definitions and codes and how to do this that makes my head spin and it's super useful if you're planning to do telemedicine to read this. But we're gonna take this as a jumping off point to telemedicine and telehealth and what it means for retina. Um, so let I will let Sarah start because Sarah, you told me you've been doing a, a lot of these telehealth or telemedicine visits. How have you implemented this, and what are kind of your ideal patients for telemedicine now and going forward in, in the future?
2: So really, I think with telemedicine, um, it's important to sort of take a step back because I think a lot of people sort of approach it by saying, "Well, I can't examine the retina over the phone, so what is the point of this?" and and you. St- sort of can't approach it with it being a substitute for an in-person exam. Um, What can I do over the phone? And you can examine vision, check Amsler, have the patient check their own visual fields, and then sort of do a review of systems as far as their visual health. And so transitioning to telehealth allows us to really provide some patient care and reassurance um, in sort of these uncertain times and allows you to more easily triage patients to who requires an in-person visit and who you can reschedule. I think probably most of our patients are good candidates for telemedicine because I think another sort of aspect of this is instead of having patients being routine follow-ups that can be rescheduled by your front desk um, and sort of being told that they're non-urgent, a telemedicine visit allows the physician to check in, let the patient know that you're prioritizing their health, reassuring them that you are open should they have any concerning symptoms or urgent needs and answering their questions. And I think all of that is really important in providing patient care, even though you're not directly looking at the retina. I would say patients that I come across that are really helpful would be elderly patients with wet AMD who want to defer treatment, um, routine. I had a patient who was a routine follow-up, but when we talked on the phone, they had new floaters. They ended up having reactivated peripheral toxo. Dry AMD, who normally would be a routine visit, looking with the answer grid, they had some small changes in new scotoma, so we had them come in early. And then some things that normally a patient may be concerned about, but you can have them defer coming in. So post-injection subconteen, a patient who has diabetic macular edema, but when you check their vision, it's been stable and no visual complaints. Um, So those patients, maybe you could have come in in a month or two instead of coming in. And so really what this document sort of talks about is is why does this work? And that's because telemedicine used to be a pretty controlled area of medicine and Medicare and other health uh, providers have lifted the restrictions on telehealth um, to allow patients to stay home. It's good for doctors, it's good for patients, it's good for the community. And so this really encourages this as a viable practice and can be a win-win for everybody. And I would say sort of the big thing is that the E&M codes bill the same as an in-person visit um, for the telehealth visit, so it's not um, it's not billing at a, a very small margin, so it is something you can also do as a viable part of your practice.
1: That was an excellent explanation, and I liked a lot of it. I've written down devil's advocate points to come back with. However, <laughs> I am merely the host of this podcast, so I'm going to ask Sriji comments, uh, things you want to add on top of what Sarah said, Any th- your kind of perspectives on telemedicine as it pertains to retina providers?
3: Uh, sure. So I thought that um, you know Sarah really laid out a lot of the great um, uh, kind of options that we have for telemedicine. And I agree, you know, um, initially at first blush, it doesn't seem like something that um, is very applicable to retina, uh, but she, you know, Proved without a doubt that it is quite applicable. Um, you know, I have some hesitations. A lot of my colleagues are using it um, in the anterior segment field, um, and my concerns are just that many of the things that we can be discussing, um, you know, in a face-to-face environment can probably be discussed over the phone. So I'm just not sure how much how additive it is to have that. Um, but I think that this has actually been great because this really accelerated the, um, the kind of atmosphere for pushing telemedicine um, for better or worse. And so as technology catches up with things like, you know, properly vetted home checking of vision and, you know, maybe even home OCT, then we can
0: really uh,
3: capitalize on um, the benefits of telemedicine.
1: Ajay, commentary.
0: I agree with a lot of what um, everybody has said already. I think that, dry AMD, for example, where you can go through an Amsler grid, you can check the vision. And though you don't have the OCT to capture any very subtle changes in fluid, if those two things are, are staying stable, then at least you have the ability to provide some reassurance and review the main education portions of, of dry AMD treatment, for example, and let the patient feel more comfortable with waiting also. It would be helpful sometimes to, to provide that, that feedback for them.
1: Well, here, I, I agree, again, I, I agree with Sriji's reservations, I agree with Sarah being the um, the the most um, kind of optimistic of this group, and maybe the most uh, resourceful, kind of has really adopted it in a really powerful manner, and I'm going to take some of those tips for my own practice. Um, you know, kind of the, here, I, I think, tele, no one, none of us are going to argue that telemedicine is a bad thing. We, we've had multiple other things about telehealth, telemedicine, that there are huge values to telemedicine from a global perspective and a national perspective for patient care, in the context of a retina practice, you know some of the things I think that need to be readdressed. The first is um, what this means post COVID nineteen. Sarah, you kind of addressed some of these points of how it could be incorporated long term um, in a non pandemic situation. We don't know when this is going to end, or if and when things will be different long term. Maybe you know we will. This will teach us all. Maybe we shouldn't have multiple large waiting rooms of patients in the same area to avoid large gatherings. Uh, because coronavirus is just the tip of the iceberg and this is something that could happen again. But, you know, the two things I, I, I struggle with is I think that um, I think that obviously any sort of good system can be abused. And what I, I would hate for this to happen is this is a way for administrators in charge of a medical practice or physicians simply are trying to increase um, profit margins to take patients who should be post-ops and then turn them into... Um, telehealth visits in the hopes of increasing space for other patients. Now, we do have a shortage of physicians. There are areas where we have long waiting lists for visit patients. So maybe in some occasions for certain post-ops, it's appropriate to do a visit over the phone. I would just say... I, I just think that the, it's a slippery slope. And you gotta be careful. I think there are certain post-ops, especially young, we, we have to teach our trainees and, and half people, there's certain post-ops just need to be seen. And, and it's hard to get, without a good exam, a sense of how they're doing over the phone. Um, and probably there's arguments about post-op day one and post-op, we want these arbitrary time points. I agree those time points are arbitrary and they can be moved around. But there is still a value to seeing those patients. And I would just worry that the way this could be abused is you say, well, a patient's in a 90-day post-op period, we don't want to see them in that period because we're not going to bill anyway. We'll just do a telehealth visit. We'll save time and open up space for other patients. That alone is not a sufficient reason to do it unless you really think that the outcomes would be the same and you can show the outcomes would be the same. Um, the other thing would be in terms of you know this whole, Sarah, you talked about phone reassurance and phone calls, and I think people are very excited about the idea that you know you can actually bill for these phone calls and, and do added value for these phone calls. But a lot of this is Medicare may pay for this, but there are other insurance companies that need to show that They're going to approve payment for these phone calls with the absence of pre-approval. And pre-approval is a big process for our visits and our injections and for other procedures that we do. I don't know what the pre-approval process will be for commercial carriers long-term for these sort of visits. So if you do a phone call with somebody and it wasn't pre-approved, are you going to bill the insurance company and simply get a rejection or get a bill to the patient? Then now the patient has to be like, well, why am I getting billed for this phone call? I would never would have done this phone call if I knew I was going to have to pay for it. So I do think that some of these questions need to be answered, and I think there are good answers that can, solutions that can be constructed for these things. I'm just saying that these things need to be thought of in advance because – I would hate for any of those situations to arise. Either someone doesn't get the care they need because, you know, their visits converted into televisit, or there's a situation where someone is, is put in a situation where they have to pay for a visit because their insurance company simply didn't pre approve it. Um, and I don't know, Sarah, what you guys have done in terms of pre approval for these visits or how you kind of incorporate that into your practice.
2: So I'd say sort of to both those points. One is I, I really actually don't think that telehealth is a thing that's going to be incorporated into my practice and probably most after the pandemic so I don't think that this is a substitute for an in-person visit or will in any way replace in-person visits I guess I feel like when we're sort of most practices when you talk to them or even at the VBS um, online forum that you had that was amazing by the way um, but most physicians sort of put their current volume at about 15 to 20% of their normal clinic volume. So you're rescheduling patients anyway, you're asking patients not to come in anyway. And so who's making the decision about each patient and when they should be coming in. And I think what telemedicine offers is not only an opportunity for the physician to check in with the patient and at least do some rudimentary tests to try to determine how the patient is doing, um, And sort of help to figure out, okay, well, this is a patient that has some high risk. I still think you need to come in or maybe come in in two weeks or, you know, you're doing great vision stable. Let's push you out to three months because ultimately all your patients can't come back in a month. So you can't take two months worth of patients and have them come back within a four week period. Your clinic's not going to be able to sustain that. And I think your point is important about looking at a post COVID environment the practices that are going to be best able to anticipate social distancing in their practice are going to be the ones that are best able to survive afterwards because even as you start having patients come in, your ability to transition to a safe environment is going to be important. Patients really aren't going to be able to, they're not going to tolerate coming in and sitting shoulder to shoulder for an hour or two anymore. That's just not going to be the way things are going to run even after a lot of these restrictions are lifted. So I think telemedicine offers a few things and it should not be confused with a replacement for an in-person visit, but it offers the ability to have patients actually check in with their physician and for the physician to be able to make an informed decision about a rescheduling process that's already happening. So patients that are still coming in would still come in, but now you are in a lot of ways dictating the rescheduling process and reassuring the patient that should they have any acute concerns that you are still available to see them. As far as the billing, one of the good things about this is that um, Medicare is waiving the cost sharing for telehealth visits. So normally when a patient comes in, they have a copay, and that's partially, you know, to have the patient have um, skin in the game as far as their health care. But because it's being waived, that means that you can sort of upfront tell the patient that you know, they won't be billed for the visit. And then... On top of that, I think you have to make a decision that if the patient does receive a bill, what your practice will do. And for our standpoint, if the patient were to receive a bill, we would waive that. So the patients are not on the hook for any aspect of telehealth, um, even though they may get a summary of the care with how much it costs and was billed to the provider um, at home. Yeah.
1: I have nothing. That was really well said, and I have really nothing to, to rebut that. That's the, that's a great response. Um, Sriji, Ajay, any final thoughts on telehealth before we move forward?
3: Really well uh, said. I'll say um, the cynic in me just wonders um, how telehealth will be implemented if payers um, start backing off. You know, right now they're reimbursing just as if they would with in-person visits. Um, in the post-COVID era, if that calms down, you know, I, I tend to agree that telemedicine or telehealth will calm down with it. Um, if is aggressive, I do think that to your point, Jade, there is the potential that people utilize it quite a bit and then maybe overutilize
2: it.
1: Well, and from a training standpoint, I think it's important for residents and fellows to learn medicine the way it's going to be practiced. So if telehealth is going to be an important part of their practices when they go out, then it's important to do it. However, I think there's always a slippery slope where you don't want to decrease the number of in-person visits to a resident or fellow. Because you do need to be a part of that, there is some reps to examining and, and seeing certain findings and kind of seeing post ops. For example, we've talked about the importance of seeing your post-ops as a trainee that isn't going to be replaced. And so isn't a replacement that experience is not replaced simply by doing those phone calls because that's what the standard of care is becoming. But that becomes tricky with training, I think, in terms of maintaining those reps. Who wants to talk about drill? I want to talk about drill. So the next article is about drill, this organization of the retina <laughs> inner layers as a prognostic biomarker. Uh, this is by Archana Nair and Yasha Modi, friend of the podcast. Um, I'm going to give a three sentence summary of this article in Drill. Drill is an OCT finding, which is disorganization of the retinal inner layers. It is correlated in very va- various vascular pathologies with a poor prognosis, a poorer prognosis for vision. We have poor ways of quantifying Drill right now, and that should be improved in the future. I think that's a good summary of drill in this article. Yasha loves to talk about drill. Um, I think drill is important, but I do think there are limitations to it. I think Shreeji, you and I have talked about drill at some point. I don't remember when. There was some article about drill that we reviewed at some point. Tell me, tell me about. I mean, do you have anything else to add? I, I think drill is interesting. I just think there's limitations right now to what we can do, but I do think there's an unexpl- There are areas, avenues for improvement in terms of giving us prognosis, and maybe as we get more therapies in the future that helps guide our treatment if we know certain patients with Drill do better than others?
3: Yeah, it's, it's still very nascent. I feel our knowledge on it um, is expanding,
1: especially with OCTA,
3: which, you know, Arshna and Yasha kind of point out. Um, right now, it can be, you know, it can be one of these things where non-specific visual decline can certainly be attributed to Drill. Um, because we don't have a great handle on why a patient may not be seeing as well. And so I always say, you know, there's disorganization here. That's probably the reason. Um, I'm interested to see, especially when we, we start seeing reversal and, and improvement um, as drill kind of calms down, I'm interested to see a little bit more research and data longitudinally on what, um, what the long-term implications are and if patients can
0: actually recover from this. I think it's a very interesting OCD biomarker, and it definitely seems to be clinically relevant. It does seem like it's a little bit heterogeneous in terms of the cause. It could be from ischemia, it could be from traction, and so that makes it a little bit harder to to figure out exactly what's going on with drill. see with macular edema, it makes it harder to use as a baseline prognosticator. I think it's something that we will continue to to look at in the future and learn more as time passes. Uh,
2: So I definitely agree. I think one of the really interesting things when new biomarkers like this come out is it gives us sort of an opportunity to get back to our basic science roots and trying to understand, you know, how does ischemic damage cause vision loss and how are these things actually structurally changing the retina? I think, so as you may remember from residency, I'm sort of an ERG nerd um, and so, one of the findings that you can have in early diabetic retinopathy, a precursor to retinal damage is loss of the oscillatory potential. Um, and so, as I'm sure everybody remembers all too well, these are um, sort of high-frequency waves um, found within the B-wave, um, but they represent um, the amacrine bipolar ganglion cell junction and sort of how that complex tends to work. And it's sort of been found that this can precede preclinical retinopathy in diabetics. And I thought that was interesting to see that drill also may precede progression to diabetic retinopathy, because I think it indicates that there is an ischemic level of damage on the inner retina that maybe isn't so easily visualized that actually has a component of um, sort of how the physiology of the eye is working. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting to see as time time goes on.
1: Great. Awesome. Next paper is on pediatric retina patients. This is from Cagre Basurle and Vitae Didania about establishing a pediatric retina call service. And they just kind of talk about kind of the needs for pediatric retina, a lot of it focusing on ROP, who does the screening, who does the treatment when treatment is needed, what are kind of the facilities you're going to be working at, making sure you have support for the ICUs, the NICUs, making sure you have lasers available, staffing in the OR. There's a lot of practical aspects here. Um, How to do EUAs and then how to do follow up. And then the the interesting thing is how about compensation and malpractice because these are actually really practical issues. Usually compensation is pretty good for this for multiple reasons, but there's a ton of malpractice associated with this. And this is one of the reasons that maybe some people choose not to do pediatric call ROP. So we'll kind of snake our way back. Um, Sarah, do you do pediatric retina or ROP call, and how is it structured for you, if so?
3: Um,
2: so I do not. Um, the, it's actually sort of interesting. I, I think there's a relatively low instance of uh, pediatric pathology here. Uh, the ROP is actually done by the pediatric uh, ophthalmologist, and they do a really great job, and they do the, the treatment for it in the NICU. And so, really, the only pediatrics I deal with are um, sort of young retinal detachments, dislocated lenses, things like that. But I I don't do ROP screening um, here in Hawaii.
1: Teruji, how is it managed at Vanderbilt? Uh, So, I'm part of the pediatric uh, ROP
3: service here. It's a mix of retina and PED.
1: You know, we follow basically a similar
3: protocol in terms of treating
1: so and here you know dr nina bear does a lot of the screening here and obviously she's amazing and she does not only um the screening but the treatments here um, i i think it's always interesting how this is structured and and one of the big issues with COVID 19 was kind of how to continue doing these screenings she's continued to do it with protections in the hospital um in the nicu i i, I think they're but the, i think one of the bigger things with, with pediatrics is just you have to kind of have all these things in place, right? This is one of the things we learned with COVID-19 is every sort of contingency has to have it. An, and if this, then what is the next step? So you, it's not enough just to have screening. You have to have a plan for what to do for treatment, who's gonna do that treatment and where that treatment will be done if you find something. And then if you do have a plan for that, you have to plan for during treatment, You know what sort of personnel are available in case these babies were very sick, go into distress during treatment. And the same goes for operating room and having a team in a room and the equipment. All this stuff is kind of logistically challenging, and it definitely is an unmet need. I think there's a shortage of people who want to do treatments and, and screenings for for good reason, not only malpractice reasons, but it's just it can be difficult to do. It's not a, a very easy thing to do. So that was a really good article, kind of summarizing the workflow for this. And I think I would I would file this away if I had a fellow or even myself. If there was ever a situation where we had to set up something like this anywhere, I would file this article away because it's a very good kind of breakdown of different steps to, to set everything up. Um, any any additional thoughts, Sarah, on this article before we move forward?
2: Well, actually, um, I would say the one thing that they sort of touched upon, but I actually think is probably the most important thing in my mind um, when you're thinking about um, pediatric retina is mentorship. So I think most of the people that I know who have incorporated pediatric retina into their yeah. practice have joined a practice where a senior retina specialist is doing pediatric and can start to teach them how to take over call and to care for these patients. I had a—I was very fortunate. I had a lot of exposure to pediatric retina with Dr. Nina Baracol and um, really loved it. Um, but I think if you don't have a doctor who over a year or two when you're coming out of practice can sort of teach you how to work within the system and sort of set up practice patterns with you, I, I think it's very hard to continue doing pediatric retina um, without that. Uh, the other thing is um, that it's really important to have a coordinator. So Dr. Baracol, um works with uh, a really exceptional coordinator, but that's important for the sort of long-term liability of ROP patients because you need a mechanism in place that when patients leave the hospital that you call social services because you ultimately are responsible for these patients if they don't show back up um, and that you need to have that system in place. And then lastly, sort of that you mentioned in the hospital, not only do you need to have staff in the NICU, but you need to have fundus photos and geography in the clinic and in the OR. And so you need to have technicians in clinic for pediatric workups, you have to have OR staff and equipment, and you need to have pediatric anesthesiologists that you can uh, use as well. So I think one thing I found in private practice is that the transition to doing pediatric retina is one that requires a large system in place, mentorship to help you sort of set everything up and and without that i think it's really hard to do
1: thanks sarah for that excellent summary of the article um we're uh we had a brief pause there we had some weird things going on with the cross lines i blame ajay and we were just talking about that um anyway <laughs> we've got one more article to discuss here we've got a definitely a very happy group maybe a little hysterical group uh you know, the quarantine is <laughs> making everyone a little crazy the last article is about retinal opposition <laughs> responding to COVID 19 by laird harrison Various people commented, I, they quoted me, and but I was definitely the least important person. There was like Peter Kaiser and David Park. And they just talked about different things about how people change their protocols and operations and telemedicine. And, you know, I think a lot of this has been covered in multiple formats going into this. And this is the sort of thing that gets dated really quickly. I think in two or three weeks, this will all looked weird and there'll be new issues we'll have to encounter. So we were talking before the call, um, before we started recording about how we're kind of scaling up and what's going to happen. Sarah, you were talking about Hawaii has extended the stay-at-home order. We're recording this on April twenty-second, two thousand twenty. This will release on May first. You know your stay-at-home order is going to be extended. Um, here in Miami and Florida, there's suspicion. There's a there's no official word, but there's a suspicion that we're going to left the stay-at-home uh, executive order expire at the end of the month, and then start opening up on a slightly scaled back perspective to to outpatient visits and surgeries. And we have a list of not urgent, but maybe the more high priority, non-urgent surgeries that got canceled or rescheduled that are going to be prioritized to the operating room. Sreeji and Ajay, what are your scenarios now going forward into May? What do you think is going to happen? Sreeji, have you heard anything from Vanderbilt in terms of what you guys are going to do? So, um, Tennessee appears to be on track to lift
3: the stay-at-home order at the end of the month and kind of coincide with that, lifting the um, elective surgery ban. In terms of preparing for that um, the plan that's been discussed among the perioperative medical directors is testing all surgery patients you know all elective surgery patients for COVID within 48 hours of their surgery and then once the positive or once the negative test results come back then they're finally cleared to come on in and go ahead and have their elective surgery and then if patients test positive they go into kind of you know, the typical protocol of the self-quarantine and monitoring for symptoms, and then their surgery would be delayed until they have a negative test. This is something that is going to represent, you know, significant logistical challenges, both for patients, you know, they're going to have to make an extra visit to come on in within a few days of their surgery uh, for the testing, but also a logistical challenge to our our testing numbers and our testing sites. Vanderbilt seems um, prepared for it right now. Our testing capacity is underutilized, but that may quickly get um, strained uh, because we have a big
0: backlog of surgeries.
1: Ajay, what do you think is going to happen in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and with your practice, which covers three states now?
0: So at this point, our stay-at-home order in Pennsylvania is still going on until um, early May. Um, We still haven't gotten to the point where we've discussed uh, opening up for elective surgeries. And so at this point, at least for the foreseeable future, we're still going to be working on an emergent surgery basis. Um, we have been talking about what, our, what we need to look at for opening up the clinic to some um, patients that are less emergent, but uh, still would benefit from coming in for an inpatient visit, like we were talking about before with the, with the telemedicine um and so we're still working out those details but at this point we don't have anything worked out for our preoperative testing um there is uh, certainly a shortage of testing kits available in in the state yeah
1: i, I think the the fascinating thing that's going to be well, there's multiple things There's the epidemiologic thing about a potential second wave which hopefully does not happen um i just i'm just curious to see what how our patients respond here you talked about how you don't think patients are going to want to be neck to neck with other patients right and how long will it be until patients feel comfortable um, going to the, um, you know, to an operating room or for a non-urgent surgery? And right now, it seems here locally, people seem ready. I don't know if that's cultural or local, but I don't know. Sarah, so you guys have a stay-at-home that's going to extend. It? What's kind of the cultural vibe there? If we kind of leave medicine, just like, how are people feeling about this? People, do you feel scared? Is there Are people out? I mean, is, are people taking the stay-at-home order pretty seriously?
2: So I think the interesting thing about being on an island is people are very aware of the fact that we sort of have the resources that we have. And, you know, that's pretty much it. So because the there's a quarantine order for anyone who comes into the state, really the future of how COVID goes here in Hawaii is going to be dictated by the people here in Hawaii and and what we do. And so I think um, because of that, people have taken it really seriously. You know, the minute there was a recommendation that people wear masks. Everyone wears masks here. Um, People take stay at home very seriously. um, All the stores, grocery stores, everything like that have markings for social distancing when you go out. Doctors' offices have the chairs separated. Um, and, And so people are very aware that there is an economic impact, but that if we can open on the other side of this More as safely as possible. That's going to give us the best overall economic outcome in the end. And I think people are very aware of that and very on board with it, which is kind of unique. Um, And I think that's because it's sort of a smaller community and a more isolated community. As far as reopening, you know, from for our practice standpoint and for our surgery center, with the stay-at-home order, we're still doing just emergent surgeries for the next month. Um, And then following that, we're sort of starting to. have maybe more sort of somewhere between urgent and routine patients sort of coming in and sort of slowly trying to increase some of our clinics. But sort of like I mentioned earlier, I think as we do this, what I would sort of recommend for our practice and I think in general is start to sort of increase your practice volumes slowly and see where you start running into problems, where the bottlenecks are in your practice, where your patients are sitting? How can you have patients, you know, wait in their cars and call them in, not bringing people with them when they come in? I think a lot of these changes that we're making to the clinic are going to last far outside of when the shelter in place orders are lifted. I think that there's going to be a cultural shift, especially here in Hawaii. And I think probably in places that were hard hit with COVID that these cultural changes are going to last, you know, six to eight months in the future starting to make changes in our clinics now that are going to run smoothly is going to allow us to transition out of the shelter-in-place to more routine care, but do it in a way that's going to be safe for our patients and be comfortable for our patients.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, and again, I'm from Miami, born and raised. I love Miami. Uh, that is definitely not the culture here, even though we're as close to an island as you can get on a, a non-island, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think that people I'm just concerned that I think people are going to show up here and I think that's fine. I think my concern is there were the other way here where people aren't, are just not going to, uh, to follow if they, if they release it slightly and say, Hey, you should go out, but don't do this, this, and this. I think people just aren't going to listen. And I think part of that is just because it's a transient city and people are in and out. And so the same degree of kind of self-sufficiency, social responsibility isn't there because most people come from someone else somewhere else or have ties to somewhere else in the country. Um, Anyway, um, Sriji, Ajay, any the final points on COVID-19? I think um, to Sarah's point, there are going to be
3: things that, you know, and to your point in the article, we really don't know when this is going to um, kind of calm down, but there are definitely uh, things that are going to persist even as we transition into the post-COVID era. And I think some of these practice um, optimization techniques that we've installed during this time will help and benefit preventing something like this from happening in the future, even to a lesser degree. So I do think that to some extent, how our practice flows um, is going to be fundamentally different. Certain things will return back to the way they are, but or way they were, but certain things will remain different. And I agree that the practices that have excelled at uh, managing that uh, during this stressful time will be the ones that are able to transition um, maybe uh, more efficiently as we move forward.
1: Yeah. Ajay, do you want to yell anything else in Spanish loudly? For the group?
0: <laughs> just
1: Are that, you wiggling, uh, Ajay? Uh, <laughs> just so <laughs> the was no, our connection was, was less than ideal, and I apologize for that. But I, and we were blaming Ajay the whole time via text. Um, and then at some point, someone yelled something in Spanish very loudly, and that's when I realized it could not be Ajay, because Ajay does not speak Spanish at all. So, uh, no matter to be what. Sarah, is,
2: I remember that when he did, he spoke it loudly
1: and, and poorly. You know, potential employers, if you read his CV and it says intermediate or above Spanish proficiency, I would just say definitely test it in an interview. Make sure you're getting what you're paying for. Um, Sarah, I know the only reason you're actually here is you want to talk about gronk, gronk going to the Bucks.
2: Oh, my God. Guys. Guys. Oh, man. Well, so first I will say. I love Gronkowski. Like of I course. just think he's the best. And so although though I am sad that he will no longer be playing for the Pats, America's greatest team, I am I'm really happy to be able to watch him back on the field and watch him with Tom Brady. So it's uh it's bitter sweet, but I think overall sweet.
1: Yeah. I I'll, I'll time. will chime in as a, it's as a only Bucs bitter sweet to upset. You, a Bucks fan, right? Yes. Yeah. I could not be happy.
3: You're the Bucks fan?
2: Month. The one Bucks fan? I nice. I'm, the,
3: I'm, the guy, I'm the guy firing the cannons, and uh, I'm excited. It's going to be, you know, 40 and 50-point games. You know, assuming there's an NFL season. 40 and 50-point games, um, and giving up 40 and 50 points also. So,
1: I mean, love it. Love I, it. the skeptical part of me is like, this is going to be, Ajay will remember this, maybe it's Trigy too, the 2012 Lakers, um, who randomly showed up on my YouTube recommended videos because I've been watching so many random basketball videos I and who had Dwight Howard and Steve Nash and Kobe and, and Pau Gasol. And everyone was like, Oh, this is going to be the greatest team ever. And it just like fell apart. Cause Steve Nash was old and Dwight Howard was bad. And it's Kobe <laughs> was old. and just didn't work. On the other hand, the bucks were not bad last year. And that's what Jameis Winston. The
2: their wide were, receivers are good. He had the first I think 30 it's touchdown. It's going to be a good team. Yeah.
1: He had the first 30 touchdown, 30 interception season in the history of the NFL. And I think he threw a pick six in, like, nine games or something. It was, like, some record. Like, he threw at least one pick six in almost every other game. So, like, even if it was, Brady... He was their defensive MVP. He, he was, was... Well, I just... I don't think the Bucs' <laughs> defense... If you actually look at the numbers, they gave up a lot of points... But if you actually look at their, like, advanced whatever metrics, I don't know football advanced stats as well as basketball, they weren't a bad defense. It was just they gave up a lot of points because yeah. he constantly turned over the ball. And if you start every if you start every drive either with the other team at the 10-yard line or they've already scored a touchdown because he threw one to the other team, like, in the perfect spot for someone just to return it for a touchdown, of course they're going to be bad defensively, right, if they're always playing yeah. from behind. I mean, like, here's his numbers. He threw for 5,000 yards, great. 33 touchdowns, great. 30 interceptions last year. I mean,
3: yeah, Brady... Was
1: impressive. Brady... And Brady, at this point, he doesn't have the arm strength, but he really is just about picking his spots, right? So if they can
2: protect him... He's them, a brilliant tactician.
1: Oh, he just picks... He's, he, he's like a, a surgeon, right? Like, speaking as a surgeon. Yeah, there you go. And I know surgeons. Tom Brady is a surgeon. <laughs> he he just... Like, he is. If Tom Brady was a... Ophthalmologist, he would be a cornea and refractive surgeon. <laughs> and Jameis Winston would well, definitely be a retinal surgeon and not a particularly retina, good one.
3: Surgeon, absolutely. The, yeah. High the
2: highs, most low lows. The thing I think we need to talk about though is Tampa Bay Tom Brady. Are we doing TB squared? Like where are we going with the merch? Because I Get think that's going to be one of the most yeah. interesting yeah. things to develop over, you know. I think this year is really going to be the year of TBTV, and it's going to be great. There,
1: you know, Ajay's staying out of this because he doesn't care about football. But, but um, they, Ajay, now you know how everyone else feels when we talk about basketball for 10 minutes at the end. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's weird that he picked the Bucks. Bucs. From a talent perspective, it makes sense. It's warm. You know, he'll be the king of Tampa, which I don't know what that means. I like Tampa. I've been to Tampa, but like... Okay, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Tampa. I mean, it's not it's not L.A., which is the other place he was rumored to go. They're not in an easy division, right? Like in football, divisions actually matter quite a bit. They've been in an easy division for a long, long time. The Patriots, I'm talking about like Dolphins are terrible. The Jets have been terrible. The Bills have been mediocre. They're actually going to a division where he's going to have to play the Saints twice a year. And I don't think the Falcons are that bad, even though they were that bad last year. Um, And the Panthers... And the Panthers
3: are always tough to play.
1: They're competitive, right? So this is like not going to be a cakewalk. Their schedule is not easy. I mean, this is all assuming football actually resumes their season. And this is all... For all we know, this never happens. And this is just the greatest team that never was. But I don't know. (laughs) Over-under, Sarah, how uh, how many games do they win? I think And where do they go? What do you think?
2: Well, just to your point about why Tampa Bay, I think Gronkowski splits his time between playing football and going to eleven. And so I think by going to Florida was the one way to bring Gronk out of retirement. Do people know what 11 I think is anywhere who are else listening Gronk to this? Is 11
1: go. nationally famous?
2: Oh. oh. Well, can you, look give, it a three, up, kids, can you give a three can you give uh... a
1: three sentence summary of 11 just like I did a three sentence summary of Drill?
2: Uh, I will not. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Tampa Bay does have the most strip club or it was rumored at some point. I think this is all old stats, but at some point it was supposed to have the most strip clubs per capita. Of like any major like top 50 us market (laughs) so that also is there um i mean let me just tell you their schedule and not to get too far into this and spend more time talking about football (laughs) than retina but they they play the i mean they obviously play all their division teams twice so those are six games they're non-division games chicago denver detroit the giants the las vegas raiders that's weird um the packers the vikings so they are playing they're paying the nfc central and then they're playing the afc west they play the chiefs and the chargers like they're gonna have to play their six division teams they have to play the chiefs they have to play the packers they have to play the vikings this is not an easy schedule i'm just throwing that out there like this because the bucks were not the nfl schedules are based on how bad or good you were the year before the bucks were like eight and eight last year they weren't bad enough to get an easy schedule this year Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, what is... Oh, they were 7-9. and nine, I apologize. 7-9. Um, there were 2-6 and six at home, Streeji. 5-3 and three on the road. Interesting.
3: Yeah, the cannon thing doesn't like, really provide that much of an advantage
1: <laughs> when you're throwing for 6-9. Well, so how many games do they win, and how far do they go?
2: I think that if they make it to the postseason, and if Brady and Gronk are healthy, they go all the way.
1: They go all the way to the Super Bowl. They win the whole thing.
2: They win the whole thing. I think if you can keep Brady and Gronk healthy, and they make it into the postseason, so that means. So I think really the question for me is the wear of wear and tear on those two guys over the course of the season. Like if you can just get in, really competitive. If you can friends. just
1: get in somehow, but which is harder in football. Though they're, can, they're going to right. seven teams this year, though I think.
2: Exactly. So, it's so I easier. think It's a harder season. If they can stay healthy and get into the postseason, then I think with what the Bucks already have, plus Brady, plus Gronk, I think they win the whole thing. So here, I think it's he, greatest of all time. Can't be tamed. Can't be stopped.
1: One point before I ask 3G or Aj, <laughs> who may have gone into catatonia at this point, um, Brady has never won a Super Bowl, I believe, without a bye. He's never been to the Super Bowl without a buy. Oh, that was a the famous Patriots that when they get a buy, they're almost yeah, unstoppable. Great, yeah. When they don't get a buy, yeah. they almost always lose the fir- the second round of the first round. Now, part of that is also yeah. selection bias because the years they don't get a buy, they're not as good, right? But now I'm sure. But it, is, it does matter to have that extra week. And it does matter from like a Russian roulette perspective, not having to play three games versus two games. It makes a huge difference in football. Because it's, it's not like basketball or these other sports where you play a series, you have one bad game. We saw the Ravens last year against the Titans. They had one bad game and they were done, right? So yeah. there is a huge advantage. And so the team now that gets that top seed has a huge advantage. Um, because it's a seven-team playoff. The top seed gets a bye. The second team doesn't get a bye anymore.
3: Yeah, and I think it's going to be tough to kind of take over either the Niners or the Saints for one of those, the, the top spot in the, um, the NFC. But I do think that they can sneak in with a, a wild card. And I think that, you know, it's hard to bet against Tom Brady um, in the playoffs. I've been doing it every year up until now, and I always lose. So I'm. I think that uh, he uh, once he gets to the playoffs, assuming that you know his arm and legs are still attached, I think he's going to do well.
1: And we never deconstructed <laughs> what happened last year, but I would not blame their loss to the Titans or their season on Tom Brady.
3: No, he just. It's hard when it's just one or two people against the whole football team. He just really didn't have all the help.
1: I think that. I, I think if I was gonna bet on money, which I don't, um, I would say that they make the playoffs, but they don't win the I I don't think they win the super I don't think anyone's beating Mahomes anytime soon. Um but who knows? I don't know. Ajay, Knicks are gonna finish last though, right? Any league. <laughs> any sport. Most,
2: most importantly. <laughs>
0: Hey, uh, this is going to be my first time rooting for Tom Brady. Um, I think unlike Sarah, everybody else who's not a New England Patriots fan has been rooting against him, Um, Yeah. whoever has been outside of that area, and this will be the first time that that he probably has an overwhelmingly large amount of support from everybody else outside of that area.
1: Well, Sarah, here's the breaking news that won't be breaking news when this releases on May 1st, but only here can you hear breaking news that's not breaking news. Percy Harvin is uh, rumored to be joining the Bucks.
0: Oh. the full. wide receiver yeah
1: no 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 the accountant
2: um sorry if it's the it. accountant well okay super bowl win for sure yeah.
1: he's only 31 he's only 31 how
3: old is this article that you're reading is this from a few years ago or
1: no it was from 50, 50 58 minutes and then yeah. if you look online, there's an article from 11 minutes ago from inside the Eagles, the Eagles blog. The title, the Philadelphia Eagles should express zero interest in Percy Harvin. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Sorry, Percy. Um, all right. Ajay, you want to go well, back? Right. You didn't get the it's same really thing. unstoppable. It's really unstoppable. you want to say something before we go, Ajay?
0: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good.
2: <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Thanks for your
1: help. This was great. Be, also, be safe. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye
2: Thanks,
1: bye. Bye.
2: Thanks, Jay. Take care, guys.
1: Stay. <laughs> As always, you can find this podcast episode and other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R E T I N A podcast.com. We have 231 episodes there, sorted by category, uh, including this one. Um, apologies again for the audio quality for the first half of the episode. We did have some, what seemed to be a call cutting into our conversation somehow the lines got crossed uh hopefully this is not a reflection of how things will change in the zoom era but um we were able to sort it out and uh, again apologies for that and hopefully it does not happen again remember you can subscribe on our website to get ep- updates in the most recent episodes or you can find our uh podcast on your mobile device in the apple podcast or android podcast apps in terms of how you can uh, give us feedback You can click, click on the contact us link on our website or email me directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thank you again to Jen Ford and the team at Pentavision for providing the retinal position issue in advance. Thank you to doctors, uh, Ajay Kurian, Sarah Reed and Triji Patel for joining me. Thank you to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for Simon Rob Bronkowski and giving us 10 minutes of fodder at the end of the episode. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angel Chang and Dr. Um, uh, Mike Benacasa for doing the social media and production for this episode. And thank you listeners for what you've done throughout this pandemic, what you do on a daily basis, the patients you take care of, the articles you read and publish and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. The feeling.
0: This is straight from the Carter's (laughs) mouth. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye.